This podcast was recorded on November 29th, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here uh, with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have an exclusive guest here from DoubleLine, Luz Padilla, Portfolio Manager and Director of International Markets on the fixed income side here at DoubleLine. Hello. Yeah. Hi, Luz. So uh, we've been saving you, Luz. Uh, today is going to be our last podcast of The Sherman Show for 2017. And so we were saving you as one of our superstars for the end. So Terrific. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, we, I think we've kind of honed the practice here now. So we expect you to shine pretty well. So uh, let's let's uh, a lot of people know you from our emerging markets team and our international team as uh, kind of one of the lead portfolio managers there. You've been with the team 20 plus years. Uh, we, we won't give the specifics there. But uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about how you got in the investment business and kind of what led you uh, to, to really start on the emerging market side of the business? Well, I always thought that I was going to go into finance slash banking, you know, even back in undergrad. And after I completed my undergraduate. So even as an undergraduate, you just you had this vision. Just some vague idea of, okay. you know, going into banking finance, whatever that meant, because it's so broad. When did Wall Street come out? Michael Douglas. Was that right around the time? Or? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that could have been around. But really, it was more, I think, driven by my dad, because he worked in banking. Okay. So I think that's where the idea started. So it's a family tradition? Somewhat. Okay. It's a it's short a no- family tradition, <laughs> let's say. Well, we're not um, talking about Hyde or anything. You know, we're going to talk about, you oh, know, oh, lineage thank you, here. Thank yeah, you. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so after I finished my undergraduate work, I I went to Boston because I wanted to live in the East Coast. And you grew up out here on uh, the West yes, Coast? Yes, yeah. on the West Coast um, and went to school out here and you, decided... You can, you can actually claim the alma mater if you want. Oh, well, I... You don't want sure. to, fine. No, okay. that's yeah. fine. <laughs> and then I started working at State Street, actually, okay. in their funds department. But I figured that if I wanted to move further up, I wanted to go back to business school to create that change. So it was really in business school that I became much more focused in the asset management business. And that's because of a fellowship that I received called the Robert Twigo Fellowship. Okay. Why don't you tell us more about that? So the Robert Twigo Fellowship was in its second year of existence. So I am one of the lucky few that uh, started to participate in that. And when I was accepted into Berkeley they were actually looking at Berkeley to expand their uh, list of schools from one to three. Um, And Berkeley was one of them. The fellowship was actually designed to encourage minority students to go into money management. So for the commitment of going into money management, they basically would pay for your schooling, give you a stipend, and give you a mentor. Wow. And this is um, graduate school, too, graduate right? School. So, I mean, right. it's not cheap. Right. I, I like how you'll claim Cal, but you don't want to claim the undergrad, the rival of Cal, oh, right? Oh, well, that would be... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you choose Cal in the relationship. Well, is that what it is? because I think that was a pivotal sort of change Fair enough, in, fair in enough. Well, I, won't, I won't bring up who the undergrad is then. Thank okay, you. Okay, 
So for that commitment, you know, I've received all these perks, if you will. And so that made my decision really easy going into money management. And then going into the field of emerging markets really came about from a conversation that I had with some classmates. We were talking about, you know, what we were going to do in what area. And we figured that if we went into emerging markets, it was a relatively new field. It was emerging. It it was emerging. That's correct. And we could become experts in five years. That was our thinking back then. Pretty, pretty naive. But, you know, um, the young hubris. I mean, you knew everything already. So in five years, you'd be an expert. This is before Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, right? (laughs) So so I ended up receiving an offer to work as a summer intern at our previous place of employment. And I'm not going to ask you to name yeah, it since you, you. you don't want to talk yeah, about yeah. you know uh, colleges. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to name a former employer. So, um, and I started as summer intern and basically you know worked my way through most of the functional positions until I took over the group in 2006. Okay, and learned a lot those first five years. So I I must say after the first five years I really did feel like an expert. And what we did notice was that. Going into year three and four, there were a lot of groups that disbanded, a lot of teams that basically broke apart. In, in the emerging markets, In the emerging markets, yeah. fixed income space, primarily yeah. because of the Russian crisis. Right. Um, well, in that time period, so I'm not going to date you, except I'm going to date. You. I'm going to date events so the people Russian can crisis. back it. Right, but there was, you know, in in your career, you had the tequila crisis, the Russian crisis, which led to the meltdown of kind of LTCM and the likes, mm-hmm. right? There was the Asian contagion it was slightly before that, right? Right. So, yeah, I think you probably did become an expert, at least of seeing what crisis looked like. But I think it's so interesting is that, you know, people look at the equity market and say, say you know, we try to talk about VAR and all these risk measures. And, you know, these are these, you know, once in 100 year events. And people are saying, well, we had two, cri- two crashes in the U.S. equity market over the course of seven years. But I mean, seven years, how many crashes do you have in emerging markets? Space, right? Quite a lot of events, let me just say. They're not crashes, sorry. <laughs> That's yeah. correct. No, so, and, and actually six months into my internship and what turned out to be a long-term employment prospect, we had the Mexican peso devaluation. Yeah in December of 94. So my career started off with a bang and it just kept going. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, when I started the business, it was in the middle of the tech wreck. So I, I kind of thought maybe that's why I always had this gravitation more towards fixed income, because <laughs> at least it kind of preserves some value. But so tell us about, you, you said that one of those pivotal moments was kind of the Russian ruble crisis. Explain what that is to the listeners who, who aren't familiar with that, um, one, and then secondly, what it meant for your markets, and then third, you know, kind of what, how it helped you know, formalize a, an on-the-job educational training. Um, that's a lot well, there, so yeah, feel free. That's a, that's a lot there. But, but I, I really do think that, that the Russian crisis really marked a very important turning point, not just for me, I think, but for a lot of different teams. As I said, a lot of them broke up during that time frame. A huge reason was because of the drop in prices that we saw. I think the the volatility that we experienced was probably by far the worst we had seen. And so the water level of the market really went down to levels that, you know, people hadn't seen before. And it was it was a relatively young market. And a lot of people were discouraged. And so I remember walking around and people just thinking, you know, this asset class is not going to survive this. I'm happy to say 20 years later, we have survived it and continued through 
to thrive. And I think a large part of it is because of, you know, the one belief that we held on to, and that is that emerging markets really is an improving asset class. And and these countries and companies, you know, they strive to become better, to improve their underlying credit fundamentals. And we have seen that play out over the last uh, 20 plus years. So since I've known you, Luz, and it's been a while, I always hear that story from you. It's an improving story. It's an improving story. It's a secular trend. How long can this continue on? Until all of them are developed. Okay. And all of these countries are going to continue to go through cycles. I think it's, it's amazing to me to see that China has now become the second largest global economy. But still, it's called emerging it's for some reason. It's still called emerging, yeah, right. right. Um, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, the regulatory environment is the same. I'm not saying that they have made it to the level where you're going to see the transparency that you see in developed markets. But but what I am saying is that a lot of these countries will continue to strive for that. And that's what's going to drive the improvement in the underlying fundamentals. And that's what makes us excited about investing in this asset class, because once China emerges, pretty much like Korea, Korea now is not so much part of the emerging market universe. I mean, it's a historical portion of, of our universe. Well, but it's a big driver of technology. I mean, technological growth exactly. out of the area. Even the car industry, right? I mean, so, so to me, that's, you know, that's what's going to happen. Like another country is going to come and take its place. So, so there's always going to be something of interest. There's always going to be companies coming up. And so the, to me, the universe is, is really infinite. Well, speaking of infinite universe, so you know, I think, you know, as people run money and you know, you want to have, you know, the broadest universe possible, you want to have all these options. And sometimes people suffer from analysis paralysis, we call it, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's just so much to do, who knows where to start. So why don't you give us a little bit of the inner workings? How does Luz Padilla sit down and say, OK, I have this huge universe of opportunity sets. How, how do you start building a framework to think about where to start um, that analysis at? I think it starts very simply by trying to identify the countries and companies that are going to continue to make improvements. It sounds very simple, but when you put that into practice, you know, it, it that's where the, the work starts. So to me, you know, it's very easy to discard companies and or countries sometimes wholly because they're not trying to make themselves better. And, you know, you see it, it starts a lot with, in the companies with their management and then the countries with their politicians. Right. Um, so if you so see... So there are good politicians there out there. There are, you okay. know, and, and if you look at the technocrats in some of these emerging economies, so much better. They've gotten so much better over the last 20 plus years. A lot of them are educated, you know, overseas. So in the developed markets, they take that back. They do their stints at the IMF or at the World Bank. And so they have a very strong, solid technical background. And that's what has allowed them to improve, you know, over the last 20 plus years. So to me, you know, that's where it starts. And it really shrinks the universe quite substantially. And then, you know, having worked in this industry for 20 plus years, I've developed biases. And yeah, I'm human. I have had bad experiences with certain companies and countries. And it's hard for me to go back. Right. Well, it's the, I guess everybody always attributes those quotes to Buffett about know what you own and, and own what you know, right? It's kind of a corollary there. But And then the other thing I would say is I've been blessed to have two very strong partners in Mark Christensen and Sufei Koo. I've been working with them for over 20 years. Mark, my whole career. 
And they also have biases. They've had 20 plus years worth of experience. So they Do also they overlap help me. your biases? Oh, they overlap? Yeah. Or? Yeah. And, and sometimes we check each other and yeah. test each other. And, you know, having worked with them and having gone through the depths of the Russian crisis, those are very trying times. And you really get to know people during <laughs> difficult times. And if you can manage to work through that and still manage to want to work together, and have a successful, you know, partnership for the next 20 years, I think, you know, you know each other pretty well. And so I think that has also been very helpful in the way that we manage money here. So we're going to have to get them on one day as well. Absolutely. Uh, definitely uh, three distinct personalities, demeanors uh, <laughs> between the three. And I, I think it adds a lot of uh, value right here. So speaking about that, you know, you talk about your long term partners here. Um, you have you've been building a team. Over the last, uh, by the time this gets out, it'll be almost our eight year, eighth year anniversary here. Um, how have you thought about that process about training the next uh, generation of leaders? And, you know, what do you what do you try to impart with them about what you've learned, uh, who, those who haven't been through these crises? Well, what I want to have is a team of portfolio managers. So whether they come in as traders, whether they come in as analysts, I want them to see all the different parts of the business because I think that if I can deliver 14 professionals that are portfolio managers to my clients, I think I've done my job. I've squeezed basically all their knowledge and all of their efforts uh, for the benefit of our clients. And so to me, you know, it, it's imp- I work primarily uh, the most closely with the traders, and that's simply because of the day-to-day flow. Mark and Soufay work more closely with the analysts, and uh, we guide them and we provide a lot of helpful suggestions, let's say, to help shape them. Um, we also want to provide uh, opportunities for cross-training. Uh, cross, uh, so if somebody that's a trader wants to become an analyst, you know, we, we avail themselves of that opportunity. And we've had somebody take us up on it. And so to me, that that's that's the only way that you're going to see the all sides of the market and, you know, be able to put together the fundamentals with the valuations. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, but I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of how we run our team, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody, you know, Sam's an analyst trader making decisions on the fly. I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. all these things that people are doing. I think it makes a better team because not only do you have a backup, you have a backup to the backup. But also it's that I don't want to call it group think because you should challenge one another. Uh, but it does make it definitely I think it's a more robust environment to, to grow in. Yeah. And as, if, as you've grown the team, are there any key characteristics that you look out for in the new hires or, you know, uh, so you're going to be growing. You know, yeah, people are listening. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's going to be resumes <laughs> coming. What, what are you looking for with the team? Honestly, I'm just looking for 14 players, people that are willing to come in, work hard and where there isn't a task that's too lowly or, you know, not within the job description. And that's not to say that we're going to, you know, ask people to do things that we wouldn't do. It's just that sometimes the job calls for, you know, a lot of different things on a day to day basis. So we well, we do, you know, whatever we need to do to get the job done. I mean, to me, that's why clients hired us. They hired us to to make them money. And so if that means that, you know, we have to stay here extra for uh, to end up, you know, sending them something that they need, that that's what it requires. So um, I want somebody that is going to come in with, you know, that type of attitude that, you know, we're going to we're here to, to provide a service to our clients. And what can I do to help? So we've talked a lot about the uh, investment management side of the business. 
on the other side, of course, we have potential clients, prospects, the end users. How has that sentiment shifted, I guess, over your career in terms of the way that potential investors view emerging markets, uh, emerging market debt? Let's just keep that as a, in particular, as an investable part of the universe or their universe, I suppose. Well, I think when I first started, you know, clients would look at emerging market debt and say, well, if I'm going to add it, I'm going to add it when, you know, prices are really low, like we can time the market so perfectly. (laughs) And then I'm going to sell it, you know, when prices are the highest. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. Instead of saying, you know, this is this is an allocation that's going to be there for a while because I believe in the asset class. So that was the early is, part of, of, you know, when I started. So all the best investors were in emerging markets then, exactly. right? They were, they were timing right. in, perfect right. timing. Exactly right. Okay. right. Okay. And I'm not sure a lot has changed, but, but I do think that we have converted some of our clients where they now actually think of emerging market debt, debt as, you know, as a, a long-term allocation. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, we shouldn't be you know, 100% of the allocation, but there should be some portion because it does provide that ability to, you know, have outsized returns, especially on a year like this year. Last year was a particularly good year. 2009 was a great year. Um, yeah, so, well, those were like 50 handle returns, <laughs> right? Yeah, those were the good old days, right? The, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but that was, you know, preceded by 2008. So right, it was a little know, rough there. Yeah, it was yeah, a little it, rough. You know, we, we it, got back all, to break even probably after right. that 50 or so. But <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it was still a little no. underwater. Yeah. Uh, yeah no, little, no, 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 no. Huh? I, I got to tell you, you know, 2008, we were down 12 and a half. Um, 2009, we were up. 45. 45, okay. So, yeah, yeah we more than Geometrically, yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're back we, above water. We were, yeah. Well, that's, we why, okay. that's why you're on the last guest of the season. You know, that's, that's why I right. said I, I build you as a superstar <laughs> here. But so, uh, to, so, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, if you could walk me through the 2008 experience, because I got my start in this business with this team in 2007. So much of my lens, you mentioned the tequila crisis for yourself, Sherman. You mentioned the the tech crisis. Mine was the housing crisis. Init- what started out initially as the housing crisis, and then and you're working in the center of that too, correct, right? Correct, yeah. correct. So that was my lens. But you know, I have very little familiarity with the emerging market space around that time. So if you can, you know, walk us and the listeners around that. Sure. Um, you know, 2008 was an interesting year for me because. Yes, we had the market go down significantly. And there, there were a lot of investors that were rightly scared, given what was happening in every other market. But something happened. And I think finally, like the cumulative experiences that, you know, we I, I had been through and Mark and Sophie had been through clicked. And so even though prices were down significantly, it felt a lot like 98, except for it was better because prices weren't as low. And we were more aware of, you know, the opportunity set. So, you know, 2009 rolled around. And I think anybody that basically had money in the market would have made money. I think our index was up 30. But we looked around and said, you know what, this is the time to go big. And so we started taking more risk, I think, than than maybe some of our clients were, were comfortable with. I remember at the end of 2008, looking at the portfolio and thinking, wow, we've got twice the spread of our index, just under twice um, the yield. And it's a better rated portfolio than our index and it's shorter duration. But because of the spread, you know, a lot of our clients were like, what are you thinking? You know, what, what's going on? And to me, I remember looking at every position thinking, no, it feels right. All of these, they're going to work out. We're going to do well. And so 
oddly enough, our markets really bottomed at, towards the end of 2008. So 2009 was a straight shot up. So we started the year, some of the positions started to work, we switched them into some other ones that had that had lagged. And we ended up with something close to a 45% return that year. It was probably one of the most satisfying years for me. <laughs> but that was 10 years ago. Too. That was 10 right. years yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so now we've so got, you got that five years mm-hmm. experience that so you mm-hmm. said you're going to be an expert. Right? Uh, right. Then it just took another 10 to get the great opportunity to, to really right. prove to that you could do it. Put it into practice. And here we are 10 and years and later still grinding. That's right. That's so, right. So speaking of grinding, um, how have you seen the landscape change in terms of other managers entering the, entering the field? So, again, people buying in. It's one of these things where you educate the world and then you're almost a victim of your success that you're telling people it's a great opportunity and then more people flock into space. And so how has that changed the way you guys think about the market Maybe the ETF market, more index money being there. How does that change how you approach the markets? Or does it? It doesn't. I think that there are significant number of new competitors. And you see it, you know, when you look at the Morningstar number of competitors, when whether it's one year, three years, five years, ten, very few people have 10-year track records. But we've managed money, you know, for longer than, than that. So, so we obviously have that experience and background. Um, so to me... You know, our approach hasn't changed. And I think that's that's the one thing that that should remain constant because that's your discipline. That's what your clients expect from you. Um, I think, you know, we have a story. It unfortunately doesn't always resonate with all clients um, because sometimes they don't understand what we do or how we do it. I remember back in like 11 and 12, everybody coming to us like, you guys are foolish. You guys don't want local currency. And I'm like, loses that and tell us that it's not there, the sharp ratio, it's not risk adjusted. And then you get vindicated a year or so later and everybody comes back and says, I only want the dollar denominator, right? right? I mean, <laughs> So, I, you know, and I've learned that you're not going to please everyone all the time. You know, it's, it, it, you learn that probably in kindergarten. Not everybody's going <laughs> to like you, but it's okay. It, and, and I'm okay with it. And I think that's, that has been something that I've learned as, you know, I've managed money. Um, in this asset class that, yeah, not everybody's going to like me. And I'd rather have a client that gets me, that understands what I'm doing and why we're delivering the performance that we are than a client that comes in and gives gives us a boatload of money and then is there's always a contentious relationship because they don't understand what we're doing. And so to me, you know, I'm, and I know that some groups within the firm don't like this approach, but to me, it's okay to say no. It's it's okay to say, you know what, we're not a match in terms of, of a client, you know, um, manager, and so you probably are better off going with somebody else. And, right. and there's plenty now of other managers that'll give you exactly what you want. It was interesting, I remember somebody within our, say, marketing department um, said, you know, the way you guys do things, I just, I don't get you. Like, that's not how other people do it. And I said, well, yeah, that's because that's why we don't work at other places. We work here. Right. I work yeah. here. I, I'm given that freedom to to be allowed to make these choices. And, you know, I, I think we're trying to deliver, again, at the end of the day, the best uh, returns for our clients. Well, I, I'm probably partly to blame for that because I said, no, we can't run these multi-sector portfolios. Lou's told me no. And if Lou's tells me no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and that's Very a, wise. Yeah. No. <laughs> that, um, you know, I, I didn't learn that in kindergarten. It, it took me probably 30-some years, but he, here I am at it. So... Go ahead. Go so ahead. what's the high-level summary of what is different? 
what makes uh, you know, your team, what makes the double line emerging markets team different? I think the approach by far, number one, and, and the staying true to the discipline. So believing that this is an improving asset class and believing that we can find those opportunities. And I think just as strongly the fact that you have in Mark, Soufe, and myself, three people that have been working together for a significant period of time in this asset class, having gone through some of the most trying times of this asset class, and survived that. And, and I, the reason for that is because now I have two people with whom I can bounce my thoughts and ideas from that have just as, as much experience and have experienced all of that with me, and and we've been able to navigate, you know, those very turbulent times. So, so their opinions, they, you know, obviously matter a lot, um, and it checks me. It there, it isn't just one person saying, "Hmm, I think this." No, it's it's you know, it's something that I can check, it, look at, and say, "Does this really make sense?" And I have two people that will are perfectly comfortable saying, "No, it doesn't make sense." Luce, go back, and, and I think that's very rare, and this particular asset class, because it's a relatively new asset class. So if you think about the history, probably started in the 90s, early 90s, we and and we have been together that long. So to me, I'd be hard pressed to to find another group that has this depth of experience. And now we're training, you know, our new young talent to basically have that same a mentality, that same approach, and the same background. So, so I think when you look at at the team, I'd be hard pressed to find that um, elsewhere. No, I like that because we, we're always harping on you know the double line family and the story behind it and how the camaraderie we see, and and then you see you know as we talk to more and more of the portfolio managers, we're giving this shine in on how there's these subfamilies within it as well too. So it, it's really good to hear. So let us change it up a little bit. Um, you know, wh- let's let's talk about, you know, a lot of people know you, um, you know, you're, you're one of our big figureheads here, Luz. And um, again, always interesting to hear your market opinions. But what's something that people don't really know about you? Um, you know, it could be professional, something you want to share out there. But what's something that our listeners would say that, you know, we know Luz, she's a brilliant woman, she does these things. But um, what will be something that kind of they say, wow, that's something I really want to know about her? Or maybe they just it's, it's something unique that you think maybe no one else has around here. I was going to say, I'm not sure people will want to know this about me, but um, I, I guess I, I, you know, one of the ways to release stress is via exercise. And I found uh, Zumba a few years back. So I love to go to Zumba classes, which is something that helps me to de-stress. It gives me a lot of joy and keeps me from... You know, climbing the walls sometimes when the markets are just unbearable. So we'll know it's a high stress time if we see you in in the media room doing some Zumba exercise. Exactly or something right. Like that. <laughs> I don't even know what Zumba is actually. I, I'm guessing it's some kind of exercise, but does it involve dance? It sounds like it's Roomba it's like kind a of dance, dance or aerobics classes, Latin okay. dancing, yeah. kind of. So, so it's, it's like an emerging it's a lot market. Of fun. Yeah. It's, exactly right. going back to my roots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, um, you know, kind of winding down here, we got to get to, you know, Sam's favorite part. So let's just talk real quick, too. So, you know, we've been talking about the secular trends. You know, uh, we've talked a lot on our podcast about global fixed income portfolios and how, you know, we use your team's expertise and viewpoints to not only help alert us to kind of these global risks, but 
also to help generate return opportunities. How should in- investors simplistically think about emerging markets fixed income? You know, so they're sitting down, they're sitting with their advisor, or you know, they're, they're do it yourself. They're trying to build it with ETFs or mutual funds, like you know, um, like some people run out there. How should they think about where to start with emerging markets fixing up? Should they try to focus on a region in the world? Should they look at the broad exposure? Should they just outsource it to a manager? What, what is what is your practical advice there? I think if an investor is going to um, put an allocation to emerging markets, they shouldn't they shouldn't focus it to a region. They should they should make it a global allocation. I think when you think about emerging market debt, they should look at it. You know similarly to other uh, fixed income strategies. So whether it's U.S. or develop investment grade or, you know, high yield bank debt, it's just another tool to use within your full fixed income allocation. And it deserves to have a weighting because, you know, to me, what, what I love about this asset class is that it almost includes all pieces of, of some of these other markets. So it's it has a high yield component. It has an investment grade component. It has a, a non-dollar component. If you know, if we decide to go into local currencies, so it's a global play. So to me, you know, you you give your manager the flexibility. Um, as long as you're comfortable with your manager and allow them to make those decisions if you know they've got the experience to give you the types of returns that you're looking for for you know the level of risk so so it it it's an it's an asset class that should have an allocation you should think about it as you do other fixed income asset classes and it it, it should be a long-term allocation because I think it is an improving asset class yeah so two things on that one is I'm going to follow up with that and then I'm asked one more question but um, I, I see that a lot of times you know, we talk to a lot of clients, you know, we we cover a lot of products, you know, low risk products to high octane hedge fund type of ideas. And, you know, when we go in with some of these lower risk strategies, the first thing people always look at in the pie chart is like, oh my gosh, this isn't low risk. You have 10% in emerging market debt. Can you explain to some people how you can actually run a low risk part of an emerging market portfolio, how it can be a lowest. Now, again, only 10% of the portfolio. Look at contribution. It has, you know, correlation, all that. But explain to someone very simplistically how you can actually run a lower risk emerging market portfolio. Fixed income. Well, I think when you think about risk, you have credit risk and interest rate risk. So if you limit your credit risk and, and you limit it by sticking to investment grade credits, then that's a way of, you know, decreasing sort of your your risk parameter, your risk tolerance. Um, and if you limit your duration, it's another way of reducing that. So when we put together a portfolio that's going to go into a low risk strategy, we f- obviously focus on the lower part of the duration spectrum. So the securities that have, you know, short maturity dates. And then we also focus on the securities that have low credit risk, so the securities that are investment grade rated. Um, currently, we have, um, you know, portfolios that are just that, and the average credit quality is in the triple B space. So to me, you know, it's perfectly sensible to think about an, an allocation to emerging market debt in a low risk strategy if it's got a short duration and it's an investment grade. Perfect answer. That's that's what I've been assuming all these years when we've been using it. So uh, I, I like that. But so uh, lastly, we've talked about all the glorious things about emerging market debt and how um, it's, it's uh, uh, in your formidable years created the, the person you are as an investor. 
What do you see as some of the bigger risk out there today? I mean, it'd be, you know, we know about valuation. We know it's high in most places. Uh, we know about all the issuance in dollars, uh, dollar-denominated debt in the emerging market space. What is kind of the, the things that worry you as we turn the calendar year into 2018? Um, well, it's interesting because the stuff that keeps me up at night, it, it really doesn't come so much from my markets anymore. It's from more the developed markets. Yeah. So, you know, I was I was down in Chile earlier in 2017 talking mm-hmm. to some prospects, and the guy said, you know, I read the newspapers in the U.S. You look like the emerging market, and Chile looks like the developed market. I won't forget that, too. Right. right. Um, well, populism has, you know, been sparked in the developed markets, and I think, you know, it's it's undeniable that that we've seen that now, you know, it may be receding somewhat, but but we certainly saw, a, you know, an uptick. So to me, you know, a lot of what's been happening in the developed markets affects very strongly what is going to happen in the emerging markets. So we cannot take our eye off of that. You know, if, if you focus it to emerging markets, China, China's inevitably, it's, it's the second largest economy in the world. And it, it is going to have an effect on, on the rest of our markets. Is it probably in the top five in terms of debt issuance okay. that we at least know about, right? It's also going to forever be in the top five of risk, you know, potential outcomes. Because if if they have, you know, a hiccup in terms of their growth expectations, the rest of the markets are going to feel in. So you don't only have to worry about your own space. You've got to worry about the developed space as well. Absolutely. Um, anything out in the universe that worries you, too, that maybe can come into this picture? No, that's about it for now. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think if, if you think about the global banking sector crisis, 2008, that really didn't come from emerging markets. That was really a developed market, you know, issue. So it's not unprecedented, let's say. And the, it was a liquidity problem, mm-hmm. really, at the end of the day, right. and it bled and over it, to everybody, right? It, it all rolls downhill. Okay. Well, thank you, Luz. <laughs> we really appreciate the conversation. And uh, I'm sorry that I waited so long, but as I said, my intention was to close the year out with you, as, as a lot of people uh, know who you are. But we'd be remiss without uh, letting Sam do his favorite part of the show. Boom. So. Right, so uh, he's already singing to himself. So um, we'll, instead of having Luz in the news, why don't you explain to her what we're going to do here? Sherman says, Luz. So effectively, what happens here is I will say a term. I think the word, I think term accurately describes it because it could be a word, phrase, or something, right? So a term. I mean, I'm say but a is, term. is a word a phrase? You know, that's a term the question, could be right? a phrase. A phrase could be a term. A word can be a term. I think we're going to gonna have to do some research here. We're going to do some due daily on yeah. this. But I'm going to say a term, and uh, you'll come back, hopefully, with you know something that's on the top of mind for you. Hopefully, one word, maybe two, maybe three. We've been unsuccessful. I claim unsuccessful to this date, but I'm going to have to go back and check the records here. And then we'll alternate, basically. I'm going to start with Mr. Sherman, then I'll pass it off to you, and then go back to Mr. Sherman. So, yeah, with, so you don't get the, the same words, you know, so that way no one gets words. to front run them. Although sometimes they're, you know, yeah, you never know. Yeah, you never he, know. he changes the rules. <laughs> you too, never so. know. All right, let's go. Here we go. Mr. Sherman, favorite app, not appetizer, let's just say an app on the phone, phone app. Tweetcaster. Favorite car, Miss Padilla? Porsche. Earnings. Growing. Negative interest rates. Bad. Bubble. Negative interest rates. <laughs> <laughs> Infrastructure. Growing. Cybersecurity. Everywhere. Global economy. Growing. Index proliferation. 
you answered it with that. Um, <laughs> um, index proliferation. ETF. North Korea. Scary. Quantitative tightening. Existing or current. Thai bot. Not involved. <laughs> All right. And that's what it, it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening. As usual, Sam ends on a low note there with the Sherman says. <laughs> but um, again, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Luz Padilla. I think uh, she's earned another spot back for 2018. So again, uh, thanks for listening. You found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, all those great uh, apps out there. And again, if you have feedback, I think you can leave them on the apps, although I'm not sure he's checking those yet. Uh, but more importantly, send it to info at doubleline.com, and we'd be happy to hear all your questions, concerns, and um, you know if they're interesting, uh, you have any uh, interesting guests you'd like us to host, um, please uh, drop us a line as well. And if you have any uh, interesting Sherman Says questions, please drop those as well. Yeah, and I think also if you want to, if you're interested in co-hosting an episode, maybe Sam will let you do that as well. So again, thanks for listening in 2017. We've had a great time and look forward to talking to you next year. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to the listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes any effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.